0: This is episode 148 of Historically Thinking. My guest today is Robert Harms, the Henry J. Heinz Professor of History and African Studies at Yale University. Professor Harms has written on both African history and on the slave trade, both within and without Africa. His most recent book is Land of Tears The Exploration and Exploitation of Equatorial Africa. It's available now from Basic Books. Professor Harms, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Well, thank you very much, and I'm very happy to be here. So,
0: this is um, a fascinating book. It's, uh, as I was saying to you uh, in our sort of pre-recording chat, it's embarrassing that an educated person um, knows so little about such an immense section of the globe. Um, it's, there's a tremendous effort, therefore, that when you're writing a book like this, uh, a scholarly book for a popular audience... You have to explain everything from the course of the Congo River, with excellent maps, by the way, in this in this edition, um, all the way to say details of rubber concessions and relatively small areas of the Congo River basin. So it's a it's an amazing achievement, and we'll get to that eventually to try to uh, describe both the high and the low, or the the large and the very small. But for but we have to deal with the fact that that even our educated listeners are going to be ignorant of some of the most basic facts. So we're going to set up some of the most basic facts. Um, Could you describe uh, what Europeans knew about the Congo Basin in, say, 1875,
1: 1876? Yes. Um, Europeans first encountered the Congo River, uh, no, the mouth of the Congo River in 1482. Uh, And the mouth of the river is... uh, Seven miles wide, and a ship from the Atlantic Ocean can sail up the river for a hundred miles with no problem, and then it hits a waterfall and Then if people get out and go beyond that waterfall, they find another waterfall, and for the next two hundred miles, they find one waterfall instead of rapids after another and so uh when Stanley came down the river in eighteen seventy seven it was nearly four hundred years since the first uh, Portuguese ships had sailed up the mouth of the Congo River. And nobody had ever, no European had ever been beyond the rapids to describe what the river was like uh, above that. I mean, there might have been some Europeans that, you know, have made it, but they never wrote about it or what they wrote has not been preserved. And so Europeans were totally ignorant of what, the river was like beyond the rapids, What's, but what Stanley found was that if you get beyond the rapids, then you've got a thousand miles of clear, uh, wide uh, river flowing that uh, you know that nineteenth-century steamboats could could sail on. And then there were a lot of large tributaries that flowed into it, so you had you could get all over. Uh, the Central Congo Basin uh, by boat once you were beyond the rapids. Mm. Um, One of the reasons they hadn't found out uh, where the river went beyond the rapids was because during the period of the slave trade, African caravans would bring slaves to the coast, uh, and then the Europeans would be on the coast and buy them, so they didn't need to go or feel a need to go inland inland and then once the slave trade ended in the basically 1860s uh, those same african caravans started bringing ivory to the coast and so europeans didn't feel a huge need to uh you know make it up the river and so uh, you know it wasn't a large priority and in fact if you go back to the explorer david livingston Uh, in the 1870s, he was on the upper Congo River. He'd come from Zanzibar, from the Indian Ocean. But he thought he was on the Nile. Mm -hmm. And he was looking for the source of the Nile, and he thought that would make him very famous. But one day in his diary, he wrote, what if I find out that I'm not on the Nile at all, but I'm on the Congo River? Then I've done all this for nothing. So in his mind... Uh, that the Congo River wasn't worth exploring, but somehow the Nile was. And of course, he was on the Congo River, yeah. but he he, he didn't know it, and he never did know it uh, by the time of his death.
0: So so the seems to me that one of the great geographical facts, and there are a lot of great geographical and geological facts even that are underlying this book, is that the Congo River makes a U. Uh, Livingston had the idea that it was the headwaters of the Nile because it what he saw the river went North. Yes. Uh, uh, but then as Stanley discovered when he then finally descended the Congo, it makes this sweeping U. What's the, what's that sort of territory within the Congo basin? It's, it's immense. I think you said it's the size of Western Europe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The basin as a whole is about uh, the size of of Western Europe. Uh, so it's a huge area
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and, uh, That's one of the reasons why, in terms of European exploration, the ability to travel by water was so important. Because, as the book shows, slogging on foot through the equatorial rainforest was a really slow slow and hard going. Yeah, yeah. And so it was this river system that uh, made it possible for uh, Europeans to, you know, travel over long distances relatively easily once they had discovered that the river system existed and once they had carried, what they did is they carried steamboats in pieces Mm -hmm. around the rapids and then put them together uh, above the rapids and then uh, it would sail on within their steamboats. It's really hard to get your mind around
0: the the fact that up until eighteen seventy five, there's something that's like the entire Mississippi River system with the Ohio and the Missouri and all the rest of it um, over this immense, or or the Rhine or whatever you try, choose to call it, over this sure. immense swath of territory, and no one knows it even exists and then within years of its uh discovery people are immediately exploiting it it's uh, it's such a rapid one of the thing the things about this book its a description of incredible rapid dizzying change
1: well, ab- incredibly rapid especially given that you're still in the 19th century and yes uh the the technology i mean there's I guess one could call modern technology, but by our standards, it's very slow and primitive. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but yet using it, uh, they managed to move in and take control over huge areas of territory. And then the humans
0: Uh, that they're, they're, that the technology and their their wills, (laughs) technology allowing human will to operate, um, there are humans that are being then uh, dreadfully affected by it as well. At, at a oh, rapid, yeah, totally. At, a, at, at an incredibly rapid rate. Um, what One of the really interesting things that, as you describe uh, Stanley's descent of the Congo is you're describing also, you're, you're describing how he's discovering, I think you call it geographies of trade uh, g- and economic geographies. He doesn't quite realize, no, no, actually, cancel that. He doesn't realize usually at all that he's encountering them, but you can see them there, and eventually he'll figure them out um, on subsequent visits. What um, can, The trading system along the Congo is intricate and complex um, when Stanley arrives, when, when Europeans first arrive. Could you describe a little bit of it, and what are they
1: trading for? Yes. Um, well, during the period of the Atlantic slave trade, they were uh, taking slaves— down to the beginning of the rapids, where then other caravans would take them overland to the coast. And uh, then once the slave trade was over, they were carrying ivory. And when Stanley came down, uh, ivory was the big item. There were also a lot of local items because, you know, they go up the river and they get cam wood, which people use. Uh, They make a powder and that makes a kind of a, a face paint makeup and you can put cam wood, powder on your face and make yourself beautiful. Uh, And so, and there were colon nuts. And so there were, you know, a lot of local trade and there was fish and so on going on while the canoes were going up and down the river. But the uh, trade that was powering the long distance travel was uh, uh trade in slaves and then a, t- a trade in ivory so uh and
0: slaves are coming from how far up the congo are they coming before they go to say uh, this is a portuguese um outpost at the at the at the base of the waterfalls um so these are these people are being taken to brazil
1: yeah a lot of them uh End up on what became the coast of uh, Angola and ended up in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Others uh, would end up north of the mouth of the Congo River hmm. where you had uh, a lot of Dutch, uh, French, and British traders uh, buying slaves and then they would go to other places, uh, including uh, New Orleans. Hmm. So, uh, how, how far uh, inland? Has anybody's ever been to Congo Square in New yeah, Orleans? Yeah.
0: How far? And in fact, I think the, if I recall correctly, the 1740 Stono Rebellion in South Carolina was led by people from the Congo, uh, yeah, who might well have been Catholic. Um, the, how far inland are they bringing uh, enslaved people? That, uh, how how
2: far? Well,
1: up, yeah. I mean, okay, uh, three hundred from the coast, three hundred miles to till you're beyond the rapids, mm-hmm. and then probably another. Uh, four or five hundred miles uh, so up the river, almost a thousand and,
0: miles down the river to the coast, um, and that bef- yeah, even and, be- even before we go across into the saltwater in the middle passage.
1: Yeah, yeah, and again, what made such a huge system possible was the ease of, of river travel, and they had these huge canoes. Uh, there is a a dugout canoe. In the Royal Museum for Central Africa in Tervuren, Belgium, that is 81 feet long and used to hold uh, 50 to 100 paddlers. And uh, Stanley, at one point, bought a canoe that was even larger than that one. And so they—they uh, they, uh, these huge dugout canoes uh, created a you know a, a very large commercial system and since there was no large single state that controlled the area mm-hmm. everything was in negotiated relationships between people from one trading town and people from another mm-hmm. and so people from town a could could trade at towns b and c but they couldn't go to town d because d was related to uh traders in you know towns f g and h and so on so you ha- it was a hugely intricate system of yeah. Who could trade with whom? And uh, if you tried to uh, subvert it, uh, you would be attacked. And that's why Stanley was attacked when he was coming down the river. Yeah, he was violating all he, these
0: trade, these local relationships, and these sort of local yeah. monopolies. Yeah. Adam's, yeah. I, I came to the conclusion Adam Smith would have loved the Congo as a sort of laboratory of, of economic <laughs> experiment. I mean, it's really it's really, it's fascinating from that perspective alone. Yeah. So we should uh the trade is also going and this is this is how you begin and it's probably incredible when you start to look it's incredible when you look at the map and start realizing the distances involved but the trade at the time of stanley when livingston and then stanley goes down the congo the trade is actually going uh it's going east as well to zanzibar um yeah how and how and does that work and first of all why and how does that work
1: Well, the island of Zanzibar is in the Indian Ocean, about 22 miles off the the east coast of Africa. And uh, because of the monsoon winds, it's uh, ideally located for ships to come and pull into the harbor uh, for ocean-going ships. And uh, the winds blow six months of the year sort of toward the Persian Gulf and uh, northwest India. And then six months of the year, they blow the opposite direction. So uh, for a thousand years, uh, ocean-going ships in the Indian Ocean have been, you know, making this trip uh, between Zanzibar and, you know, that area of the East African coast and uh, the Persian Gulf and India and so on. So that, this is a well-established network. Uh, ivory was arriving from East Africa, was arriving in China uh, you know, by the 14th century, and uh, the, the the whole network was well known. But when ivory then becomes uh, more valuable, especially with the rise of, of piano production uh, in the West, um, there then Zanzibar becomes a center for the, where the ships come to buy ivory, and then. Uh, Zanzibar was also the place where mostly Arab, but also Swahili-speaking people who were not Arabs, but were Muslims, uh, who lived in Zanzibar would organize caravans and send them into the interior to get ivory. And the interior, when I say the interior, we're not talking rainforest now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're talking what's uh, often called the savanna, or it's sort of a prairie grassland with uh, scattered trees. Mm-hmm. And that's where the big elephant herds were then, and that's where people go today as tourists to see the big elephant herds now. And uh, as the ivory trade grew and grew, the caravans had to go farther and farther inland uh, to find the, you know fresh elephants and fresh ivory. And the caravans, Uh, carried everything uh, on foot because of the tsetse flies, which would bite any uh, pack animals. So you couldn't use pack animals. Hmm. So everything had to be carried on people's backs or people's heads. And that's how the caravans were organized. And uh, caravans would have a thousand, even up to 3000 people uh, going inland with goods to trade uh, for ivory and coming back. And they would take years to do that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a, a caravan trip would often take 2 or 3 years and uh in the book I talk about uh one of the characters is this caravan leader Tipu Tip and one of his trips he was gone for 12 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so uh the uh by the 1870s uh the uh what I call the ivory frontier or the place where people were finding elephants and fresh ivory, had moved all the way to uh, an area about 750 miles inland from the coast where you start hitting the rainforest. Mm -hmm. Well, there's some mountains, and on one side of the mountains is the rainforest all the way to the Atlantic and the other, and on the east side of the mountains is this savanna all the way to the Indian Ocean.
0: This is the rift
1: valley of the, Uh, the mountains along the rift valley? Uh, Yeah, uh, slightly beyond the Rift Valley, but it's uh, the, uh, yeah, they call it the Albertine Rift, which is, Mm. yeah, so it is a Rift Valley. It's different from what the Kenyans often call the the Rift Valley, but uh, anyway, it's it's huge mountains and then uh, huge gorges that are filled with water of lakes. Lake Tanganyika is often over a mile deep and so on, but so... Where I start the book basically is the late 1870s when uh, the ivory caravans are not finding any more ivory or, or enough ivory in the Savannah region, and they're starting to cross uh, Lake Tanganyika and go into the the, the rainforest. We should uh,
0: we should also mention um, that these ivory caravans are also trading in people. Um, yes uh, it's uh, probably a surprise to realize for that um sometimes Americans don't realize that uh simply because the uh civil War ended in eighteen sixty five uh that slavery did not end around the world um and that in fact slavery was was good business in uh late eighteen seventies Africa,
1: yeah, and the slaves basically headed toward the Indian Ocean coast and one of the things that happened was that it turned Zanzibar turned out to have a climate that was just perfect for growing cloves. Uh, up until then, almost all the cloves in the world had come from the spice islands uh, in Indonesia. And, but now they had a rival uh, in the soils and climate of Zanzibar and the number of slaves and then Arabs from uh, the Persian Gulf moved in and, uh, created huge plantations worked by slaves, and you had about 100,000 slaves in Zanzibar uh, producing clothes. And then you started getting a big business in producing dates in the uh, southern part of the Arabian Peninsula that needed to be irrigated. You needed fancy irrigation works and so on, and that required a lot of slave labor. And then up in the Persian Gulf, you had... Uh, producing salt in the region of Basra, which is now in Iraq, and so on. So there was a lot of of uh, uh, demand for labor in the second half of the 19th century around the Indian Ocean Rim, mm-hmm. and Zanzibar became the central uh, transfer point where slaves, people who'd been enslaved in Africa then got sold uh, to uh, Arab traders who then put them in, these Arab boats called dhows and took them up to the Arabian Peninsula, the Persian Gulf, and uh, regions such as that. Mm -hmm. So these caravans, yeah, carried both ivory and and included uh, captives that uh, they were going to sell as slaves.
0: So that's our sort of economic geography. Those are the trade routes as they exist in 1876, 1877. Um, let's talk about these three personalities that you follow um, from the beginning to the end of the book. Um, the first is perhaps the best known, um, Henry Morton Stanley. Uh, who was he in 1877?
1: Okay, let me just mention one thing about all three personalities that I focus on. I have one thing in common is that they all have ambiguous identities, <laughs> And uh, sort of chameleon-like personalities. That's very true. Right? They can be yeah. different people in different situations. But let me start with Stanley, as you asked. Stanley was born in Wales with the name John Rollins, uh, to an unwed mother who gave him up to be raised in, uh, they called it a workhouse, basically a poorhouse. And uh, as a in his late teens, he managed to get passage on a ship to uh, New Orleans it was a cotton ship that brought cotton from New Orleans to the uh, industrial centers of of Manchester uh, in England. And he so he came to New Orleans and he saw this man, Henry Hope Stanley, who was the uh, biggest cotton shipper in New Orleans at the time. And so he took the name Henry Morton Stanley uh, and he claimed that the... The cotton shipper, Mr. Stanley, had adopted him in a private ceremony but had never made it official, so he claimed that he was the adopted son of Henry Hope Stanley. Then the Civil War breaks out, and he first fights for the Confederates, and he gets captured by the Union Army, who tell him that they'll let him out of the prison camp if he'll fight for the Union, so then he agrees to do that. So he fought on both sides of the Civil War. Then he... uh, gets a job as a newspaper reporter in the American West in uh, Missouri and into Kansas and Colorado and he fights uh he covers what was then often called the Indian Wars but and then the Colorado Gold Rush and he uh wrote stories about the the gold rush uh, in Colorado and then he got hired as an international correspondent by the uh uh the New York Herald And was sent various places, including uh, West Africa for the Asante campaign and Ethiopia for the Ethiopian campaign. So he had some familiarity with Africa. And then he decided that he would make a a major journalistic uh, 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 project and go look for the, the famous explorer David Livingston, who hadn't been seen or heard of for two years. And he thought, I'll go find him and interview him and bring him back and then that will make me famous. So, so he convinces his editors to uh, finance the, the expedition, and he goes into Africa and he does find Livingston. Yeah. It wasn't actually that hard. People <clears throat> Once you get there, people knew where Livingston was. Uh, and uh, he was right in one of the major uh, trading towns the, along the major caravan route. So, uh, it, I once read a comic book about Stanley and Livingston when I was a young boy. And they show pictures, you know, slashing through the jungle and they just happen to run into each other or something like that. Now, they met in a you know, a well-established town on a well-established trade route. But at any rate, uh Livingston is looking for the source of the Nile. And uh shortly there a couple of years after that, uh Livingston dies, and then Stanley, who's back in Europe, uh decides he wants to complete Livingston's quest. Uh, I mean, he's obviously looking to become famous, mm. and uh, he gets the, the New York Herald and a London newspaper to both sponsor him on an expedition to find the Nile, the, or the source of the Nile. And so he goes to the last place that Livingston had gone on, uh, what was called the Llewilaba River, which flowed north, and he thought it went to the Nile, and then it made this huge cur- curve And then at some point, he realizes he's on the Congo River and not the Nile. Uh, At that point, he has to, since nobody cares about the Congo River, he goes back to Europe and he has to sell it. Talks about the immense wealth that can be gained from trading in uh, in the Congo and how the people are wealthy and they want to buy European goods and they have a lot of natural products to sell and so on. And the British aren't interested, but King Leopold of Belgium is and hires him then to build a wagon road around the rapids so they can haul steamboats along that road uh, and put them on the upper river. And that's how the the exploration uh, or the the exploitation of Equatorial Africa got started. Mm
0: -hmm. Let's go to let's uh, let's put a pin in that and move back to it in just a bit uh and let's talk about the next uh personality um who's probably completely unknown to an english-speaking audience uh pierre savournian de brazza
1: yeah yeah when i grew up uh the uh the former french congo was always called congo brazzaville Mm -hmm. and one of the most powerful shortwave radio stations in the world was radio brazzaville so I grew up, w- was familiar with the name Brazza, but not knowing much about him. Uh, but he was totally different from, so Stanley who was from, you know, complete. Brazza grew up uh, in a sort of a noble family living in the Papal States of, of Italy. He was well-educated and his parents then sent him to a the a Naval Academy in Paris or in, in France, uh, because he was interested in a, a, a naval career. And he got a commission on a ship and, that often patrolled the coast of West Africa. And at one point, he saw this river, the Ogowe, which uh, went into the interior and again had rapids. And so nobody knew exactly where it went and he decided he would find out. And so he goes uh, in to find out. and. He arrives at a point within about 100 miles of the Congo River, but he doesn't know it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knows where he is, but he doesn't know that the Congo River is nearby. And he spends six months marching uh, north and south, uh, almost exactly parallel with the Congo River and never never seeing it. And this is almost exactly the same time that Stanley is coming down the river. Mm-hmm. Well, eventually he gets back home and he reads Stanley's book and he figures out that he was near the Congo River all the time. So, he goes back uh, to uh, comp- find a route up the Ogoaway to the to the Congo. Well, you go up the Ogoaway till it doesn't go anymore, and then you go overland for about a hundred miles, and then you hit the uh, river called the Alima, and that'll take you into the Congo. And in the process of that, he meets an African king. Uh, that they call the Makoko. That's a title, not a personal name. But uh, And he signs a treaty with him in which he claims that the Makoko had deeded all of his lands to France. And he goes back to France, and he wants the French Parliament to ratify the treaty. And at first, nobody cares, but then partly because of a lot of Public favorable publicity he's getting in Paris newspapers and because he has a big fight with Stanley that gets a lot of publicity, suddenly the parliament ratifies his treaty without even any debate. <laughs> uh, so, so I like the details. The parliament's in the middle of discussing the agriculture bill, and somebody says, stop, let's take a little break and discuss Stanley's treaty. And they discuss Stanley's treaty for about 15 minutes and vote, yes, uh, we'll, we'll ratify it and then they go back to discussing the agriculture bill and so suddenly france uh has uh basically made a claim to taking over a uh, a large swath of 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 uh, western equatorial africa uh and then uh, brazza gets made the governor of of that whole region then eventually but he doesn't really have many ideas about how to develop it. He he likes to go on and keep exploring, and sometimes he'll be away from his office for two years at a time, <laughs> traveling up this river or that river, and uh, and finally the French uh, get exasperated with him, and, and basically they fire him, uh, and he doesn't come back till the very end when he leads a commission of inquiry to try to uncover a lot of the of the horrible things that have been going on in his absence. Mm-hmm
0: let's finish by uh, talking about someone who is in equally as he um, has uh, Debrazza Italian, uh, who becomes a Frenchman, and sort of like a better Frenchman than the other Frenchman um, we've Stanley, he's Welsh, he's Confederate he fights for the Union, he's all these things, he goes back to and he dies in England um, Hamid bin Mohammed aka Tipo Tip, you've mentioned him once already, who is he?
1: Yeah, he his father uh, was an ivory trader uh living in Tabora which is about uh in the middle of uh, what's now uh Tanzania. Uh so it's about maybe 400 miles inland from from the Indian Ocean coast. And uh his he's always known as an Arab, uh, but he has a certain amount of African ancestry as well and it's hard to know. I mean Uh, his official biographer, a a German fellow who knew him at at the time, says that his mother was uh, an Omani Arab coming from Oman in the Persian Gulf. Uh, Another story circulating at the time had it that that his mother was uh, the daughter of a Tatela slave woman that uh, from the from the interior, and the third story was that his mother was a uh, a slave woman uh, from the coast. But at any rate, he had both mixed Arab and uh, African ancestry, and he spoke Swahili, which he wrote using Arabic characters. Hmm. But and he spoke Arabic as well. But he he was he spoke Swahili much better than Arabic because when he spoke with Arabs you know, from the Persian Gulf who came down, he would always have a translator who would translate, and he would speak, and the translator would translate it into Arabic. But because of his mixed background, he could be an Arab when he was dealing with Arabs, and he could be an when he was dealing with Africans, and that helped make him a hugely successful trader. And then after he'd built up his ivory trade, he decided to actually create a, a, a state in which he was the ruler and all of the subordinate chiefs whom he had conquered uh, would collect ivory as tribute and send it to him so he didn't have to trade for it anymore. And he didn't have to go uh, you know, back and forth to Zanzibar to get uh, trade goods to trade for ivory. And that's why at one point he was away from Zanzibar for 12 years because uh, he didn't need to worry about running out of trade goods since he was getting his ivory uh as uh, as tribute and not not through trade what um,
0: uh, so his 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 trade expeditions are based like war parties right I mean they're like little conquer miniature uh, it's a miniature army that is going and conquering other people and then setting them up into not just taking their ivory but also setting up a tribute relationship
1: yeah absolutely uh yeah i mean these caravans were always heavily armed mm-hmm. and uh, uh partly for to defend against attack, but also in case they wanted to attack other people mm-hmm. and yeah. so uh yeah so these caravans yeah, yeah were like small small armies on the move
2: mm-hmm. was,
0: they're, they <laughs> they're small armies or small towns uh and he uh he also deals in slaves
1: yeah um he um it, it, especially early on he got a uh, into, uh, as he was building his empire, he fought a lot of battles, and in each of these battles, he would uh, often capture people who he would keep as slaves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of these slaves would be then put to work. uh, He he set up his headquarters in a town called Kasongo, and would be put to work, you know, growing rice, growing food for him and his followers. Uh, Young men would often be put into his army uh so you know you can either work as a slave in the fields or you can well give you a gun and you can be a a soldier well they would choose uh being soldiers so he after a while developed quite an army of young men from the local area who had been captured and then would enter into his service uh and so uh a lot of the slaves the people who were captured and enslaved then stayed in that area uh to grow food women would would grow food cook food or be be wives and concubines men especially young men would be soldiers and so he had this huge uh slave following as it were Mm -hmm. and some of the the captives then would also be sent uh out uh toward the indian ocean coast not a lot of them would arrive in uh all the way to Zanzibar, because there were these other Arab trading towns where these slaves would often be purchased. And so the caravan that started out maybe with a large number of slaves, would uh, some of the slaves would be sold here, some would be sold there, some would be sold there. And by the time they got to the coast, the number of slaves in the caravan would be uh, diminished from what it had been at the beginning.
0: Now, uh, eventually... Uh tip, which he I should say he enjoyed being called that um he calls himself that as well he, he, yeah, he likes the nickname um it's apparently based on the sound that his rifles made uh, and, and what and to terrify and terrified the uh, people that he was shooting at um, He becomes a governor in this congo free state which is the child, as it were, of the very benign-sounding International African Association. Now, what the story of the Congo that I've always heard begins with this, or it begins when perhaps the Berlin Conference. What I like about your approach is, is that um, the geopolitics, the, what Europeans are doing doing, are not necessarily the most important thing at any given moment. Um, this is much more of a, a Congo-based story. Or at least that's the gravitational pull is always from the Congo, uh, from the, yeah. from the ground there. Um, so very briskly, uh, what's the International African Association, and how does it eventually um, birth this uh, the monster of the Congo Free State?
1: Yeah, I mean it was started by King Leopold when he hired Stanley to build a wagon road around the rapids and get some steamboats, uh, you know, onto the the Upper Congo River. And it was first called the uh, the Congo Study Committee, and right. then the, the name keeps changing. And they were going to build
2: scientific
0: stations, I think, for ethnographers yeah, and yeah, botanists. They were gonna, yeah, It, it, it sounded like and a new, and, Yeah.
1: Go on. And, but eventually it's called the International Association of the Congo, and it he calls it an association, but it actually has only one member, and that's King Leopold. But he's sort uh, of
0: a secret member, right? I mean, there are other members, there are other committee members, but eventually everyone's sort of dropping out without – they don't know, realize the other people. It's very confusing, uh, but the, in the end, the only shareholder and the only person who's really on anything is Leopold of Belgium. Yeah. Okay.
1: And again, it's – it's to just to keep it clear, it's not – the country of Belgium that is taking over this. It's King Leopold as a private personal project. And then once uh, he's, uh, you know, established an infrastructure and then he sends a bunch of people around signing phony treaties. I mean, there's a whole part of the book where Stanley and his people are running around one side of the Congo river, signing phony treaties and Brazza is running and his people are running around the other side of the Congo River signing 40 treaties. <laughs> and the purpose of it is to take them to Europe and say, look, all these people have pledged themselves to us, basically. Uh-huh. And so when the, the Berlin Conference meets in eighteen late 1884 to try to sort out, to keep the different European powers now from getting into a fight over who controls the Congo River Basin, King Leopold shows up, and well, he doesn't personally show up, but his representatives show up, and they basically say, look, rather than having you people fight over all this, just turn it over to King Leopold's Inter- Con- International Congo Association, and uh, we'll make it a free trade zone, and then just have it so everybody can make money, and you won't have to fight with each other. And they they ended up thinking, well, that's a pretty good idea, so uh, they they turn it all over to King, the whole region over to King Leopold, and uh, and then that becomes. He calls it the Congo Free State.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, free, mean not because people are free, but it, it's. I guess it's free of of control by any any nation because well, the Belgians don't control it. I just want to
0: underline this because uh, it, you describe at one point it's. Uh, There's a debate over an Anglo-Portuguese treaty in the House of Commons. And who stands up to advocate the International Association of the Congo but Jacob Bright? Now, I cannot emphasize enough what a radical liberal Jacob Bright is in Parliament. This is a man who's advocating, who's complete pacifist. He's against any sort of uh, military action. His uh, brother had been against the Crimean War. His brother is an uh, elder brother, even more famous radical politician, John Bright. Jacob Bright is for women's suffrage in the 1880s, um, long before it happens. And this is a, a man who's at the far left fringes of British politics as it then was. Um, and yet. He's there advocating for what now seems really monstrous, the International Association, the International Africa Associate, the International Association of Congo, whatever it was calling itself at that moment, because it would preserve a free trade zone in the Congo where the natives could trade freely with one another, but also with European powers without coercion. That was the idea. That was what he was advocating. Yeah, that's right. Um, so and this gets into one of the themes of the book is the way that um this humanitarianism, uh, of the uh, you, it explores uh, you, you say that I'm exploring the complex interplay of humanitarianism and rapaciousness, of development and destruction of global demands and local interests. Um, this is a great liberal humanitarian who ends up supporting King Leopold's rapaciousness. Um, this is as, it's just it's confusing because it's real life
1: yeah uh, and not only Leopold, he got a lot of support from uh, especially the British Anti-slavery Society. Yeah, absolutely yeah. Why? Because from the very beginning, uh, when he first formed his, his first uh, Congo study committee, he claimed that one of the reason, one of the purposes of it was to uh, stop the internal slave trades in Africa
0: was he serious there about was, that? Slave... Was, he, was he serious about that at that moment or or what do you think i mean that, it's probably pointless to ask but or is that just
1: no, no no i don't think he was i think he he thought that that would get him british support because mm-hmm. the, the the Brits were worried about the slave trades that were continuing in africa mm-hmm. and so he thought that would get him british support and because uh his first title for his organization that came out of his Brussels Geographical Conference was uh, something like the Committee to Explore Africa and Fight the Slave Trade or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then when it turned out that the British wouldn't join his organization, he cut out the part about the slave trade. But, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, But still, it was something he was using. And then later, in 1889, after he was in control of the Congo Free State, but he would promised to make it a free trade zone, and he didn't want it to be a free trade zone. So he called what was called the Brussels Anti-Slavery Conference, and he talked mostly about the Arab slave trade going on to the east and how it would be stopped. And clearly, if it was going to be stopped, it would have to be by him. And he said he didn't have the resources, so he needed to abrogate the free trade agreements and charge tariffs to have enough money to fight the slave trade and the other uh the other countries at the conference uh agreed to give it to him so that was the end of the free of the free trade zone and uh you know he never well the way he fought the slave trade was he he uh kicked the the Arab Swahili traders out of the eastern Congo and confiscated all their ivory but, uh, and then and then
0: engaged in forced rubber gathering eventually uh, which yeah. was really indistinguishable from slavery and in, 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 in most aspects yeah absolutely
1: uh, and so he was using the the goodwill of the anti-slavery, humanitarians, especially in in England, but also in in Europe, because Mm -hmm. Cardinal LaVertre, the French Cardinal, started an anti-slavery society in the late 19th century in Europe, again, to fight mostly Arab slave trades. And uh, Belgium recruited 600 people to form a modern-day, you know, medieval-type crusade to go and fight the Arabs. Uh, So he was using this... uh, anti-slave trade humanitarianism as a way of uh, of uh, gaining support from within Belgium and uh, in the international community.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Let's talk, um, That's so we just touched on one of the three themes of the book, which is the impact of the internal slave trade in Africa and of anti-slavery movements in Europe. Um, as we've just said, it's not what you might think. Um, it goes in strange directions. Um, the second theme, and we've already discussed this a little bit, is resource depletion. Um, how fast is ivory depleted? I mean, the, the, you've, we've already, you've already described how ivory has been by 1877. The, I, I thought, by the way, parenthetically, um, how much middle class, the rising middle class tastes are, um, how they affect uh, the Congo and Central Africa. Um, the, the, as pianos get cheaper, as sheet music proliferates. Um, as people, more people decide they want a billiard ball for the parlor, uh, if you're upper middle class, um, well, uh, billiard table for the parlor, um, you start to need ivory, uh, for all these things, uh, when bicycles become really important and all of a sudden you need lots of rubber. All these things are being driven by the consumer tastes of, of Europe and America and the growth of a uh, middle class. But, um, for how does ivory begin to be depleted?
1: Well up you know up until about uh 1880 or so you know it was being depleted in the the Savannah regions where you had these large herds of elephants that you know you could spot from miles away uh, and the uh tourists go to spot you know even today but once you get into the forest the uh, elephants are in the deep uh thick jungle and they're hard to see and they're hard to hunt and so on, so they're hunted mostly by <clears throat> deadfall uh, traps uh, along the the little paths in the forest that elephants follow, where a, lo- uh, a log with a spear uh, I- inserted into it gets dropped on the elephant's neck, or a uh, a pit opens up and the elephant falls into it. But they can't kill elephants all that quickly, but So what they were doing, basically, was that for most of the last, you know, couple of hundred years, ivory had really had no use among most of the people who lived in the forest. So if they killed an elephant, they ate the meat. And then sometimes they would take the tusks and just pile them on the edge of the village or something because nobody was sure what to do with them. Hmm. And so... The earliest traders what they were doing is going after what they call dead ivory, which means ivory from elephants killed long ago that are sitting around. And they would well they would buy it or often they would attack a village and uh especially grab women as hostages and then trade them for ivory or uh various or just go in and confiscate it. And so a lot of what would happened during the period of this book was they kept moving into new new regions of the forest and trying to just sweep up all the dead ivory. And then once they'd done that, of course, there'd be more elephants killed, but the amount of ivory coming out then would, would slow way down, because they couldn't kill elephants, you know, all that fast. So the main way they kept up their ivory production was to keep moving into new areas all the time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, especially the people, Tipu Tip's people, but there were other people who were sort of partnered with Tipu Tip who weren't really under his authority. They were sending out armed caravans to to new regions in the forest uh, all all the time to try to, uh, first of all, get the dead ivory and then than get any new elephants that were killed. Uh, and so the uh, the ivory frontier was moving. There were still a lot of elephants in the forest, but they simply didn't have the means to, at, the, at that time to kill them at the rate they wanted to get as much ivory as they wanted. So the best thing to do was just keep moving into new areas. Yeah. And then what I talk about, and you mentioned at one point in the book where the Congo Free State starts waiting until an Arab uh, caravan has amassed uh, 10, 20 tons mm-hmm. of ivory, and then they attack them and take it all. Mm-hmm. And so they were letting the Arabs go in and do the dirty work, and then they would wait and and, and confiscate all their ivory. And, but
0: uh, but gradually profits are getting are diminishing from the the ivory trade. I want to make it clear that one of your one of the things that you're highlighting in the book is is that we often begin the people, as I understand, often begin and end by discussing rubber in the Congo. But you're emphasizing the importance of slaves and the ivory trade, which are uh, the slave trade, of course, has been going on for hundreds of years by this time, and the ivory trade uh, precedes the rubber trade.
1: Yes. Yeah. But and it's only after it starts becoming clear that the ivory resources will be running out you know, within the foreseeable future that uh, the Congo Free State starts looking for an alternative, and they find it in these rubber vines that grow in the forest. So it's, and rubber turns out to be remarkably like elephant hunting
0: in that you have to travel throughout the forest uh, searching for them. Uh, it, it's not, it's nothing, it's, it's hunt, it's, it's, ga, it's the gathering part of hunting gathering. Uh, it's not agriculture in any traditional sense.
1: No, no, you, 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 tap the vine. And the thing is, there are a lot of different vines that look almost identical, but only, uh, only the landolphia vines had rubber. And there were a lot of others that looked like very similar, but, but were different. So, some you know, Europeans traveled through the forest and said there were rubber vines everywhere, mm-hmm. but it turned out that wasn't true. That there were vines everywhere, but most of them were not rubber rubber vines. And so, and if a certain rubber vine was tapped more than twice a year, it would usually die and dry up. So then the people have to go farther the next time and find fresh ones.
0: And and, and this is being done through uh, whipping and flogging, uh, which would be familiar to any historian of, the say, the Deep South, uh, a cotton plantation. I mean, I was reading this and thinking, geez, this is exactly, it sounds like, what happens when uh, enslaved people on a cotton plantation in Louisiana, Mississippi, don't make their quota. Uh, The same thing happens when people come back out of the forest after 15 days and do not have their quota of rubber sap.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then they get flogged, uh, I mean, beaten really badly. Yes. Some of them die, uh, and some of them, you know, n- never fully recover. Yeah. Um, And
0: eventually, even the rubber begins to disappear. People have to travel farther. Because they they kill the vine when they tap it? Is if that, they tap it too frequently. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, the temptation is to tap it frequently because you don't have to travel as far. Uh, yeah. But then when it dies, you have to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the forest.
2: Um, yeah
1: and, and the problem is when you go deeper into the forest you run into other people because <laughs> there are people who live everywhere in the forest so you run into other people who are heading in your direction yeah and the two groups meet and then
0: war breaks out And then out. where do you go? Yeah. Um so all this leads to resource depletion. Can you br- br- briefly describe because we're running I at, we're running out of time. Um the uh the African resistance to both the uh ivory hunting caravans and to the rubber concession companies because this is not you're not te- you're, you're, as i said this is a congo-centered story so how did these people uh, resist this exploitation from both the indian ocean and the atlantic ocean
1: yeah in uh, during the, uh, the when the arabs were first coming in looking for ivory i described the uh, people called lega l-e-g-a uh, who valued ivory and made ivory uh, carvings and statues and in fact In the last couple of decades, there have been exhibitions of Lego art in New York, Los Angeles, uh, uh, Brussels, Amsterdam, and so on. The the, the Lego art has become quite famous. But uh, because they used it for art, which was used by a secret society they had, uh, they wouldn't sell art to the uh, Arabs. They wouldn't sell ivory to the Arabs. And uh, so they would... Uh, a mass in large numbers to fight them off when the Arab Ivory caravans came. And they were rather successful, and the Arab Ivory caravan just started avoiding the Lega people and going to other places. But in, in other places, the Arab Ivory caravans seemed to be more successful. They would attack a village and capture people and then hold them ransom till the ivory was delivered. Uh, and... Uh, then if we get to the rubber companies, what people had a, a variety of ways of resisting. One way was just frequently tapping the same rubber vines because they couldn't find others, they would kill them. And uh meant that the rubber supply was diminishing. Another way was to uh out of their village and live hidden in the forest, uh, which was very unhealthy because in you know clearings with sunshine and so on and living deep in the forest is, makes you much more vulnerable to respiratory and other diseases. But they would do that to uh, get away from the, the armed guards of the rubber companies. Uh, another thing they would do is go into open rebellion. And when they would do that, then the Congo Free State would be called in and they would come in and put down the rebellions. But rebellions were continuous throughout this area Hmm. and the final thing was just to move far away and people would sometimes move 100 200 miles away uh just to get away from the rubber company and and
0: which uh, is as you make clear at the beginning of the book um one of the most important thing is is this clan association or this tribal association this is one of the problems with right with um you free a slave, and then where are they going to go? Um, this is one of the, the terrible parents. They go back to sometimes the family that sold them into slavery because that's the only place they know. Um, therefore, moving 100, 200 miles away is is another example of cataclysmic change. Oh, yes. Very definitely so. Yeah. Um, this uh, – I want to m- just uh, wrap up by talking about some of the things behind the book, Um We haven't, we've just touched, skated across the surface of it Um, to change the iceberg metaphor. This is the very tip. The book is like the ivory tusk of a very large elephant. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's talk about the rest of the elephant. Um, You, at the end of the book, you describe briefly doing field work in Zaire during the 1970s. And so I was appalled to find that a historian acted, was acting as an anthropologist, perhaps without a license. Um so I imagine that there's field work there's uh archival resources in throughout europe um what else this is decades of of, of
1: material in this book yeah uh, my original book I ever published in Africa was a history of the bobangi river traders in the nineteenth century, and uh that was collected almost totally from uh, spending two and a half years uh, with uh, a dugout canoe and going up and down the middle stretches of the Congo River, hmm. and in uh, interviewing the elders in all the villages and finding the descendants of the of the famous ivory traders from the nineteenth century, hmm. uh, you know, very little, a little bit of that comes into this book, but the context and one of the most interesting things I picked up in my interviews was if I asked people, have you ever heard of Henry Morton Stanley? Yeah, he's the guy that came down the river paddling backwards. (laughs) Yeah, you mentioned that in the book. Yeah. The reason they say that is because in a rowboat you face backwards when you row. Yeah. And in canoes you face forward when you paddle. So when they saw him coming down in his facing backwards, they thought it was the most ridiculous thing they'd ever seen. And a hundred years later, people are still. Yeah. So what else, what
0: are some of the other resources you you used?
1: One of the things was that almost in that period, it seems like almost everybody who went to Africa as part of an exploration team or as, even working for a company or anything seemed to go back and write a book about their experiences and sometimes just publish their journals mm-hmm. and, and uh, so a lot of the people who were there would keep journals and sometimes I would get the the raw journal itself and sometimes I would get the published journal uh, but then you could you could compare the different journals and the different stories and you could you know you could get a sense of the larger thing going on by seeing what the different people had to say about it. So often uh, I was, I actually had an abundance of sources and uh, there was so much I had to cut out uh, Uh because uh, somehow the people who, the Europeans who went there seemed to uh, keep very good journals and and often try to publish them when they got back.
0: And and I guess the Congo Free State kept meticulous records, which still exist.
1: No. No? Uh, Yes. Yes, they kept records. But when the Belgians took the uh, Congo Free State away, burned all the records of the Congo Free State. They burned all the uh,
0: records. Wow.
1: And uh, you could see smoke arising from the, the king's palace in, in July for <laughs> a week while he was burning all the records in the furnaces of the palace. Um, but... But it's not that every record w- was burned. But I mean, everything that he kept in the palace was burned. But obviously, there were there were rec- there were records that got squirreled away in other parts of the government or the administration that have survived. So th- those are what I used. So
0: you have a um, remarkable nuance throughout the book. Um, I had. The last I had heard about Stanley is that he's just a, you know, he's just a thug. Um, and gosh, he was awfully thuggish at p- points, but you, um, this is just a small example that you point out that often Stanley, uh, he did not shoot his way down the Congo. Sometimes people complained that he wasn't act, he wasn't, uh, uh, Some people have treated him as a sort of Wild West uh, wannabe cowboy gunfighter shooting his way down the Congo. You point out that sometimes people uh, in the King Leopold or his minions were complaining that Stanley wasn't violent enough. Um, Yeah. So how do you achieve nuance other than through just the passage of time? Um, It it seems to me to be a um,
1: it seems to be a, a real art. Yeah, I think it helps to be working from detailed, uh, in this case, detailed records. In the case of Stanley, all of his papers and his diaries uh, exist in the Royal Museum of Central Africa in Belgium. And uh, so if you're writing about one period of time and you've got his diaries and then you've got his books, which he wrote his books tremendously quickly after... Mm basically followed his diaries with embellishments. Uh, but if you're looking at a certain set of incidents, then you, you focus on that documentation and you don't try to project uh, things from what, what might've been in his head in the circumstances. Mm. Uh, because for example, when he was on this thing called the Even Pasha Relief Expedition, he was very violent and, and brutal because he was just charging through unknown territory, basically trying to get get out the other end. But when he was in the Lower Congo, trying to negotiate treaties and set up a a state in which the African chiefs would cooperate, then he was very very different. So he was very trans—I would say transactional. Mm-hmm. You know, brutal when it was when he thought it was called for, and conciliatory when he thought conciliatory. Yeah. And by having the detailed, the diaries and so on, then in any situation, what's he doing in this situation? And you don't project, like, brutality, you know, all the way through or, or conciliational
0: All the way through. And that extends to realizing that even people like Jacob, the reasons, the complex reasons that people like Jacob Bright might support uh, Leopold's move into the Congo. Yeah. 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 Um, my final question is, um, as maybe as personal as it gets in this case, um, as w- listeners will have discovered, this is not a, a really a pretty topic or a pretty story. Um, it's interesting, <laughs> but it's, there's, there's hard things in this book. There are very hard things in this book. Um, your last book was about the 1731 voyage of a of slave ship, the diligent uh, from Brittany. Um, how do you write? What's the effect about writing about such hard things? Um, the, the, I believe the philosopher and ethicist, Philip Haye, uh, when he was studying uh Nazi experiments on children described that he felt that he was slowly being encased, uh, within a hard shell, um, which was in which he could find, fi- finally found himself imprisoned. Um, maybe this is not as bad as experiments on children. Um, but it's, can be close. Uh, how do you compartmentalize um how do
1: you how do you deal with this?, well, I think what I'm doing in the writing is instead of it's very easy to say that these people were all monsters mm-hmm. but if you do that, then you say, "Well, we're not monsters, so it has nothing to do with with us." <laughs> and if you realize that most of these people uh under other circumstances were not monsters and the the reward and punishment structures uh incentive structures of the time was or whatever it was they got caught up uh led them to do monstrous things and there's no question that they did uh extremely monstrous things even though in other circumstances they might not have been monsters and what i'm trying to do is tease out what is it that makes people who are Maybe ordinary, bland, and even boring people Hmm. uh, under certain circumstances will do monstrous things and have monstrous outcomes. And that's what I'm trying to uh, to tease out. And one of the things I'm doing in this book is there have been previous writings about the atrocities in the Congo, but they always blame it all on the King Leopold. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to get Leopold off the hook but there were so many other people involved that supported him and helped him and, and made it all possible. And so what I want to focus on is try to understand what was it that made them get involved in the ways they did and or even try to justify what they did. And, and one of my characters is this, this American uh, uh, Kinesi, Edgar Canisius, who seems to work for the rubber company. And when he completes his job, he gets a big bonus for being so helpful. And then he comes back to England and writes a scathing denunciation of the rubber company. Hmm. And you wonder, how could he participate at one point? And maybe he felt so guilty that he came back and wrote the, the scathing denunciation. But I'm trying to get at what happens to ordinary people when they get caught up in these kinds of circumstances that seem too big for them to to manage?
0: My guest today has been Robert Harms. He is the author, most recently, of Land of Tears, The Exploration and Exploitation of Equatorial Africa, now available from basic books. Robert Harms, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking.
1: Oh, my pleasure. It's been a pleasure to talk to you